everybody here this morning. If you got your copy of God's Word, I hope you do. If you don't, there's some copies in the back on the table back here. We're going we're gonna to be looking at Genesis 21, 1-7. That's going to be our main text. I wanted to inform you of a few things and then tell you how we're going to approach the text today. Uh, to start with, you should have a few things with you this morning. If not, um, first off, this, this is a little bit more of a uh, cardstock paper is information. Um, this is helpful. E- email is, is somewhat helpful, but it's becoming vastly outdated, unlooked at, that kind of thing. And so if you don't have a copy of that, pick one up. It's on the wall as you go out uh, right on your left. The second is sermon notes. Um, back in front, you should have a copy of those. Also, our growth group talks about the sermon. It's in line. It's discussion-based. And as you come in on the, on the right, there's, there's, two, there's two growth group lessons. One is on the text I'm preaching today. And our growth groups talk about that. So if either you've been to your growth group or are going to your growth group, they will discuss the message that I'm fixing to talk about. And also, as you'll see, if you pick it up, next week we're going we're gonna to have a, a sermon that's going to be more geared to, to parenting and the responsibilities of both the church, and the parent toward making disciples of our kids. And uh, so make sure you get both of those, and you can study ahead of time. Everything we do is connected to God's Word. And so with that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's Word. What we're going to do this morning is a little different. I'm going to spend my focal time of the text of our time this morning in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 21. And after we read that in just a second, I'm just going to... We're going to flip back to chapter 11. We're just going to do a brief summary because I want you to understand because we're reaching some resolution to some conflicts that's been going on in the narrative. There's a grand conflict. There's a small conflict. And so we have to understand these these two conflicts, these two tensions that are going on in the narrative so we can appreciate the fulfillment of them when we get to the passage today. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, so turn with me to, to chapter 21, Genesis 21. And let's read verses 1 to 7. Stand with me in reverence for God's Word. Genesis 21, beginning in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Lord, as we look at your word, there is some profoundness to the text today. As your promise is fulfilled, Lord, there's some miraculous things going on in the text today. There's some gospel parallels. So, Lord, open the eyes of our people, of your people, us, make us sensitive that we dare not miss it, Lord. And there's things 
that I can't deal with today but are there. And so, Lord, help our people to enjoy all of it. May we rejoice and enjoy you this morning by rejoicing and enjoying and obeying your word. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So now turn with me back to the end of chapter 11. Genesis 11. We're just going to go through this very quickly just to sort of remind us. If you're not familiar with this section of Scripture, if you're new with us, just go back and take your time and read it slowly later. But remember, we started at the end of Genesis 11, 31 to 32. And so he moves to Haran. And there we see this beginning of a journey that starts with God revealing himself. We see Abraham's faith and a promise given. This is the beginning of of this journey. It's also the beginning of this conflict of this narrative, this tension that's going to grow as year by year goes by. Chapter 13. Look with me in chapter 13. We see in the midst of life, God repeating, God repeating the promise. Then in chapter 15, chapter 15 is important because remember we had said God had made him an oath and he, he can't break his word. He has promised him. He's made him a promise. He can't go back on his promise. But here we see God entering into a covenant with Abraham. You see, this is God working in time and space. A covenant was a normal part of that culture. And so God makes a covenant of what he has promised and he ratifies it. He seals it formally with blood. When chapter 16 hits, hopefully we can clearly see the conflict. So the major conflict, the major tension that's growing is this impossible promise. As year by year goes by and the sun does not come, the ability of both of them to have a child becomes lesser and lesser, a physical possibility. So we have this growing tension, this growing conflict in the narrative as year a year goes by and God keeps promising and they are waiting and now we have chapter 16 hits and we see because of their lack of faith in the waiting we see this minor conflict this smaller conflict begins when Sarah has this idea that she will give Hagar to Abraham and they will have an offspring and they do and they call his name Ishmael and this creates a conflict this conflict comes to a head in chapter 21, 8 to 21 today. We're not going to spend our time on that text today, but it's important to understand that this little conflict that's been going on through the narrative reaches its resolution in chapter 21. And, and the resolution comes when Isaac is 2 to 3 years old and, and Ishmael is about 16 and Sarah perceives a threat and, it, and then he ends up sending her and him away. He casts them out. That's the biblical term. This is important because we're going to come back to it later. It ends up in Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness crying out to God. God comes to them. He provides for them and he stays with Ishmael until he has grown. So we see the resolution of that conflict. But in chapter 17, you look at chapter 17, the conflict, the major conflict is still continuing. In 17, the first is chapter 17, we see the covenant 
the covenant was given, the covenant of circumcision was given, that they would physically be reminded of the obedience that they have to trust in the promises and be continually reminded of the covenant God had made with them. Also was reminded in verses 2 to 6 that Abraham was going to be a great nation and that Sarah was going to be fruitful. So you see the conflict, the tension is still gathering here. And then we see this amazing, what we looked at last week, chapter 18 and 19, inserted into the text to where, where he's ha- Abraham's having a meal with, two, so with three messengers, three angels. And he gets two messages. One of them is, in a year, Sarah's going to have Isaac. So now we have a timetable. In one year, he's coming. This was it. But Sodom and Gomorrah, we will completely destroy. So we have this really a greater tension that runs through all of Scripture. The contrast between the wicked and the righteous. This God is revealed, this theological lesson that Abraham goes through and that we go through, that God is a God of just judgment. And so we have this lingering question. Who is the wicked? Who is the righteous? How does one be righteous? These questions linger in our own minds, creating another tension. So chapter 20 hits. So flip with me to chapter 20. That's in our our readings for today. And, and you would think, now think about this, Abraham was standing in a place where he had interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, then he stands back in that place, and they are gone. They've never found them. They still argue about where they are. God's a God of justice, and he, we see that God, they get God's power, His just power has been displayed. He knows more than anybody the preserving power of God for him, and yet we see this is important. Think about when the promised son was coming. He sits in the tent and he says, One year from now, Isaac's going to be born. That means nine months of carrying this child. The conception of Isaac is imminent when Abraham repeats the same sinful deception he's already done in the past. Remember in chapter 12, he goes down to Egypt. So that's my sister, takes into the harem of Egypt. Now he repeats it in a Philistine place called Gerar, and he does the same thing. At the very cuff of this conception, the king named Abimelech takes her into his harem. And this creates this amazing verse where God speaks to a pagan king. It's not going to be the only time he speaks to one. You ever had a bad dream? I was telling him, I, had a, I always have this dream. I, I can't find my notes or my iPad or something to preach. It's like this petrifying feeling. It's time to start preaching and I, I can't find my notes. You know, I always have that dream. It comes back all the time. It always looks, it's, it's got all kind of goofy things in it, but it's, it's that same petrifying feeling. But none of us have ever had a dream, I hope, like Abimelech. Look at chapter 20. Look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. 
because, you, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now that is a bad dream. <laughs> now don't mistake this Philistine ruler as a Yahweh follower, but he knows divine judgment when he hears it. And so he pleads his case. I'm innocent. I didn't know. I didn't know. He deceived me. Look at verse 6. It sounds a lot like Psalms 51 when David was repenting of, of adultery and murder. Look at verse 6 of chapter 20. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Listen. And it was I who kept you from sinning against who? Me. Not Sarah. Not Abraham. I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So there we see God's sovereign, preserving grace. God is sovereignly protecting them. This quote is in the Gospel Transformation Study Bible, sort of a summary of this, just so good. It says, We are starkly reminded that God's purposes for His people are not tethered to their performance. The family sins that are passed down from one generation to the next do not determine God's presence and redemptive action in their lives. The Lord has mercy on whom He will have mercy. Romans 9, 15. Now, that's good news. It's good news. The sins of your yesterdays do not determine your tomorrows. The gospel does. God's grace does. His mercy does. And here He has mercy on Abraham and Sarah, and there was nothing, not a king, not their own stupidity, that was going to keep God's promises from being fulfilled in their life. That's good news. And so we get to chapter 21, our main text, and 25 years has, come, has gone by. Abraham has went from 75 to 100, and those were long years as he waited and waited so we see this morning in verse 1, the Lord fulfills His promise precisely as He said. There's some precision going on in this fulfillment of the promise. I want you to see it today. It's amazing. Turn with me to Genesis 15.4. I just want you to see how this, how this promise grew, this revelation of the fulfillment gets more and more precise, and then it's fulfilled. Chapter 15, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. This boy is going to come from you, Abraham. 17, chapter 17 and verse 16. Chapter 17 and verse 16. Talking about Sarah now. God says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So, Abraham, this son's going to come from you, and she's going to give it to you. Y'all were going to produce this son. Now, now flip it with that. Chapter 18 and verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So we can see this gradual progression, this gradual thing. Now we've got a timetable, and now we, hear, we see at the proper time, at the exact time, this growing, 
conflict. How can God possibly give us a son? 25 years later, it happened just at God's timetable. The Lord visits Sarah just as he said. Look at verse 1, the first part of verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now the key word there is visited. That's a biblical word. It means divine intervention in someone's life that shapes and alters destiny. In other words, when God visits you, things are changing. Either it's going to be really good or it's going to be really bad. And here's what we see. God visited him. He divinely intervened in his grace. And it changes things. You see, visited is a sovereign word. God's engaging his people today. From the inside out. And this is not the first time it happened. If you, if you want to turn to it, it's 1 Samuel 2.21. Do you remember Hannah? Hannah desperately wanted a child. She couldn't have a child. And so she pleaded to God and she said, I will give him to you. you can, he will serve you for your glory. And Look at chapter 2, verse 21. It says, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we, we see that not only did God visit her and grant her and open her womb, and she had Samuel, he gives her five more children. God intervened, and he intervened in, in verse 1 in Sarah on his own timetable, precisely at his appointed time. And can we all be honest? This is incredibly hard, isn't it? God's got a timetable. 25 years. 25 years of waiting, of watching. Imagine this. You're a husband, and you desperately want that child for your wife, and year after year you watch her get older, and you watch her body stop working, and yet God has made a promise, and you're waiting, trusting in Him. So, hard to trust. We're going to see that. Abraham fought for faith. He didn't obey faithfully. And the Bible's clear and honest about that. He wasn't always perfectly obedient. But he was progressively obedient. But we, hear, we see here, this, the focus is God. God fulfilled his promise. Look at this. The end of verse 1. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. What I want you to see, as the Lord did to Sarah. So we're all adults here. Let's love God with our minds this morning and ask this question. What did he do to Sarah? We say he fulfilled the promise, but let's think about this thing. What did he have to do to fulfill the promise? This is amazing. Turn back with me to 18. Verse 11, verse 11, and now, chapter 18, verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, what was going to cause Isaac was dead. It was dead. It had stopped working. And at this promise, everything that was dead in Sarah came to life. 
man, this is, this is amazing. Think about this. This is, don't read over this this morning. Something had to happen inside of Sarah. Everything that was needed to produce a promised child, everything that was needed to carry this child, everything that was needed to deliver this child, and everything that was necessary to nurse this child came to life at the command of its creator. Man, that's good. What we ought to be thinking, I'm, i got a question. Is your God that sovereign? Or have we created a God that bends to our will? This is what God, He's made a promise. And He reaches not only into time and space, but He speaks to the very body of Sarah. And He says, you're coming to life because my promise will be fulfilled. And it obeyed. Ephesians 2 says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. By grace, you're saved. This is the gospel seen in this promise of Sarah. 25 years of suspenseful waiting relieved through a miracle. And Sarah has a child, and he asks this question. What, what was Abraham going to do? How is he going to respond to this? He's been waiting for 25 years. His 90-year-old wife has a child holding this child in his hand for the first time. And we see, what does Abraham do? Abraham obeys obedience. Fulfillment prompts obedience. Look at verses 3 to 5. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Notice the redundance of the Scripture. I want to make sure you understand who had who. When it happened, verse 4, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Look at the end of verse 4. The focus of how he responded as God had commanded him. As God had commanded him, he named his son Isaac. Why? Because in Genesis 17, 19, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So when his son was born, his act of worship was obedience, and he named him precisely what God said to name him. This should remind us of Matthew 1, 21, when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That was the promise. That was the command. That you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. So what, how did he respond? In verse Matthew 1, 20, verse 25, speaking about Joseph still, said, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So how did Joseph respond to the fulfillment of the promise? He obeyed. He obeyed. So just as God commanded, he named Isaac, and just as God commanded, he circumcised him. Why? Because in Genesis 17.10, God had said, This is my covenant. You shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So Abraham circumcised him on the eighth day of his life. This should remind us of Luke 2.21. Speaking again of Jesus, it says, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, 
he was called Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. So we see Jesus, circumcised on the eighth day, named exactly as God. This is a parallel. So Abraham responds to the fulfillment of God's word by obeying God's word. How would Sarah respond? So Abraham obeys the Lord God. Sarah celebrates the Lord God. She celebrates in him what God has done in her. You see, fulfillment prompts obedience, but it also prompts rejoicing. She was rejoicing. Verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. If you flip back with me to chapter 18, verse 12, this is contrasting a laughter that was not rejoicing. 18, verse 12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, This is important. This is what's happening before. After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? So this was doubting laughter. She wasn't the only one that was having doubting laughter. Abraham fell on the ground one time laughing. So think about this. Now, son comes, Abraham obeys, names him Isaac, which means he laughs. This is important. No longer will Isaac be a sign of their doubting God's faith, it will always be a sign of God's faithfulness. Every time they said, Isaac, come to supper, they would remember the rejoicing. Some of us need to understand this in light of the gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross and forgives our sins, He doesn't simply forgive us. Forgive us. He cleanses us. He cleanses us. This is why your past doesn't define your future. God says, I have forgiven that. You don't have the right to carry it anymore because I've already paid for it. You don't have, you don't have to carry it anymore. Now, your sins of the past only serve to remind you of God's faithfulness. That's the good news. You see, the birth of Jesus would bring far greater visitation, a far greater divine intervention in our lives and fulfill far greater promises. Turn with me to Isaiah 9-6. We know this passage. We've read it especially, especially at Christmas time. We've got to keep this in mind with the gospel, and I want you to think about this in light of what we learned last week with Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? Justice. And with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. 
Christ comes to set up his kingdom. He set it up. And he promises he will uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And for some, that's the best news in the world. And for others, it is absolutely terrifying. So this promised one, this promised king, this promised Messiah, Messiah king was promised. And then so in the fullness of time, an angel came to Mary, a young girl who had never known a man, and said, you're going to have a child. She said, it's impossible. How would I have a child? I haven't known a man. She said, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And you'll have a child, and you'll name him Jesus. And what was Mary's response? Obedience. Do with me according to God's will. And then, Luke 1, verse 46, Mary commences with a song of praise. Listen to this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary responds with this promise, with obedience, and with praise, and with worship for the mercy that God has shown on her. Joseph, as you know, wasn't as keen on the idea <laughs> to start with. And so an angel came to him in Matthew one we We've already looked at that, but... Let's read the whole verse because we're going to get a sense of the better promises. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now that's better. That's better. It's better than land. It's better than anything. You're going to save people. This gets the question, who is righteous, who is wicked? How is Jesus going to make things right? Jesus will save the people from their sins. Romans 4, 16. How? How? Romans 4, verses 16 says, This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promises may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, Paul's in, in verse 17. Put, put Abraham and Sarah in your mind and the impossible nature of the fulfillment of the promise of Isaac. Let's keep reading. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. Listen who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Pause. What is he saying? saying? Abraham knew. He looked at both. He said, I'm about dead. 
I'm about dead. And Sarah's barren, and now she's old. This is, this is impossible. But God has made me a promise. I will trust in that. I will put my faith in that promise, not in what I see that is impossible, but in the God who makes promises and cannot fail. This was the father of faith. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body was as good as dead or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's room. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 22, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Listen, this is the gospel. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Is that what you were trusting and rejoicing in this morning? Is that what you're trusting in? That, that Christ... That I have no righteousness on my own, but Christ came. He was a righteous. He was raised up on the cross. He died for our sins to remove our guilt. As it was in the Old Testament, one lamb was hands were placed and was slain for that sins. The other lamb was sins were placed on it and it left the camp never to come back. This is what God did for us permanently. Once for all. And listen, he raised from the dead. Look at the text. What happened when he raised from the dead was guaranteed our justification because of what he did. These promises are better because we are declared righteous before a holy God. So what? Is this what we're trusting in? Are we rejoicing in this as believers? Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. We've read this. Several times, but if you're in a, if you're a teacher in here room, you know one of the best ways to teach is what? Keep repeating it. This is good. This is good. Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He came. He was the offspring. Our growth groups are going to talk about the fact that one thing that God provided by the Son of Promise, our Lord Jesus, the promised seed from Abraham, was the formation of a people of God called the church. Some people today cannot rejoice in Christ because they despise His bride. And if you despise His bride, if you neglect His bride, you will not be able to rejoice in Christ. For Christ makes much of his bride. And they, those who make much of Christ make much of his bride. This is, the work, this is what God saved us to. This is what he freed us in verse 24. Look at verse 24 in Galatians 3. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What does that mean? It means that when the law comes... It became perfectly clear in the righteous column and in the wicked column, there is none in the righteous column. None. 
God's people were not perfectly righteous. They did not keep His standard. So what are we going to do when the righteous judge must judge wickedness and we are all wicked? This is the gospel. This, the law points to our need, needness of something in the future, somebody to come, and this was the promise. See, Christ, He came, and He was perfectly righteous. In John 8, 56, speaking to the most religious people in the day, He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see me, and he saw me, and he was glad. Here's, what is he saying? He's saying, I am the promised Messiah who's come to save you from your sin, and you want to kill me. You're not rejoicing in me. You're not. You're not trusting in me. Abraham looked forward to me, and he looked forward to me, and he seen me come, and he said, that's who I'm talking about. He's the promised seed. He was what was promised to me ultimately. He's how all the nations can be blessed. Galatians 4, 28. Oh, this is so good. So good. Galatians 4, 28. It says, now, you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. See what he's talking? He's talking to the church here. Talking to the Christians in Galatia. He says, now you, now you, you're children of promise. Oh, we could spend some time there, couldn't we? I could ask you when the promise was made for you. It was made for Isaac. It came to fulfillment. So it is with us. Good thing I don't have time to get into that. Think about that. But we're children of promise. What does that mean? Listen. Now, this is where the minor conflict that we talked about becomes important. The conflict between, between Hagar and Sarah and the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. That Hagar despised Sarah because she had a child and Sarah couldn't. And then Sarah had a child. See the conflict? She dis- Ishmael... Whenever Isaac was weaned at two to three year old, they began, began to be a conflict. Who's going to be the heir? This is the picture. That's a word picture this morning for our understanding of who we are and understanding who the Galatians were in Christ. Look at verse 29. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So what is that saying? He's saying that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Isaac was born according to the Spirit. He was born according to the flesh. He persecuted him. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what is this saying? First, in verse 28, it's saying, We, like Isaac, owe our salvation to a miracle of God. Not something we did. Not something ultimately that we chose. But we are children of promise. God fulfilling His purpose in us. What is He, what is he getting to? What is He putting His finger in with the church of Galatia? Do you see? There were Judaizers that, Judaizers that were coming into the church and they said, oh, now we're going to give you grace through faith. But you also need to do this and that this and the hair on the back of Paul's neck I could see it raised up 
And he says, don't you dare change the gospel. To add to it or to take away from it ceases to be the gospel. We do not add to grace. It is grace alone. It is through faith alone. Don't add works. In other words, he's warning the Galatians. Don't you fall back into legalism. Don't you fall back into saying, if I do this, God's going to be happy with me. Because you're minimizing the work of Christ who died once for all and we have been satisfied not by what we do but for what He has done and He has declared us finished. He has declared us righteous. And so we are free. We are free to be the King's children this morning. You're a child of the King. This is good. You're free to enjoy that this morning. Do you enjoy being a child of the King? Listen, I mean this. I enjoy my kids. I was just washing my truck, and Jacob was out there, and we were just talking. We were just talking. A little bit of theology and a little bit of whatever. Is that how you feel about God? Do you enjoy Him like that? Or is it some kind of formal assent? God is holy and we treat him as holy. But he means for us to enjoy him. And listen, you cannot enjoy who you do not trust. You can't. You can't enjoy them if you don't trust them. Parenting. This is why we work hard with parenting in the beginning. Because we want to have that day at 19 years old when we can sit down and just rejoice in his son. We, why do we rejoice in each other? Because we trust each other. God is your Father. And He wants to be trusted. And He means to be enjoyed. And for a believer, this looks like a particular thing. You see, for a Christian, ultimately joy naturally moves toward selfless sacrifice for the good of others. You see, so joy in Christ, trust in Christ, inevitably leads to say we are free. What are we free to? To passionately pursue the mission of God. You see, in Christianity, there are no pacifists. There's not. There's only warriors. There's only those who become the children of God then who are given the, the armor of God and that says, now you are free to go fight. So are we rejoicing in being a child of God? Are we rejoicing in, in our relationship with God? And we are we rejoicing and trusting in the mission of God? This is what he's urging the Galatians. Don't fall back into legalism. Don't fall back into this, I do this and I don't do this, so God's happy with me. Realize who you are in Christ and get on mission with God because that work is finished. Quit mulling around in something God's already paid for. Christ has paid for it. Now he says, you're mine. Get with it. Put on the armor of God and fight. Galatians 5.1 continues this thought and says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Free. We're going to stand up and we're going to, we're going to encourage ourselves. We're going to exhort ourselves as Christians to stand. Then we're going to exhort ourselves to love. We're free to love. 
Have you experienced that freedom? So, Lord, as we bow before your word, your word is spoken. Your word is finished. So, Lord, what will we do to such a gospel? What will we do with it? Will we reject it? Will we despise it? Or will we stand and say, you are worthy of all of my life. You are worthy to determine what tomorrow looks like, what my 10-year plan looks like. You determine those things. And I put my trust in you. Lord, accept our worship. Because you are worthy of it. And Lord, if Christ would not cover us right now, we would not have the right to stand and sing. But Christ has been raised for our trespasses. He's been raised again for our justification. And so, Lord, the work of Christ in our life is finished. And we are tethered to Christ. And so, Lord, receive our worship now. And all God's people said, Amen. Stand with us and let's worship the Lord.